It's good to see you all this morning. Um, again, this is a sort of a several things coming together, I guess would say, uh, in my thinking this for what to share this morning. Um, coming from books I've been reading, coming from our uh, Friday night small group study, um, even from our small group on Sunday mornings on the Ten Commandments uh, using Alistair Begg's Pathway to Freedom book. So um, I hope this is useful. Let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your great grace to us. Lord, we know that you love us. You have redeemed us through your son, Jesus. You have called us in, into fellowship with you to be in Christ, that we might grow, that we might mature as individuals in Christ and as a church in you also. Lord, I pray that you would use this morning's time as we go through uh, your word again in a couple of different areas. I pray, Lord, that it would be your spirit speaking to us. Lord, correct any errors that, uh, that I make. I pray that uh, this would be a profitable time for us all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There you go. Oh, hit what one? Oh, okay. Oh, uh, okay. It's not advanced as so much as it go down through. Got it. See, we should have had a training session before we started. All right. Um, that just. Uh, goes to show sometimes we think we know <laughs> and we don't. <laughs> so uh, there's much to be learned about that particular subject. Uh, last time I gave you an outline of where we're going to go. So I, I, I wanted to do the same. Um, today's plan, uh, hopefully what we'll get through, is that each of us uh, recognize that we are part of God's kingdom, his kingdom in this world. Okay. Um, uh, we uh, must grow in Christ. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. And that uh, we would realize that our responsibility is to commit ourselves to the fellowship of believers and to make known the kingdom of God. So I guess my first question for us as we start, and as I've asked questions before in the audience, these aren't rhetorical. I would appreciate some feedback from the audience. Otherwise, it might get awkward. <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, you know, sort of a little bit like we do in Sunday school class. And I guess my first question is, uh, in our daily lives today, in the world in which we live in, are we, the people here or the people even listening, are we too comfortable? Okay, before you give me an answer, I just wanted to think a little bit about what it is or give you an example of what's being comfortable. Okay. I used to have a blue recliner on the back porch. 
okay? And it was puffy and pretty comfortable, and I could put the, 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 you know, the little uh, uh, platform out there, and it was long enough to accommodate my, my longish legs. And uh, I could uh, get comfortable there, and if it was cool, cold on the back porch, uh, you know, I would have a couple of blankets there and a pillow perhaps or two, and I could just settle down there and be comfortable. You know what I mean? That comfort, right? And then I would read uh, more often than not. I'd have a book or two out there with me. And then sometimes when I got done reading, I might nod off for a while. I might have one of the dogs come join me. You know what I mean by comfortable? Right? And, 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 you know, and, it's, and you're in that kind of a situation, you think, well, the one other thing I need, if I had a cup of tea, that'd be really good. And, or, or, or maybe iced tea, if it's, it's warm, right? And we think of the things that will add to the comfort and make it even better, right? I think we invest in our comfort in day by day, right? But the question is, are we too comfortable? Any thoughts? Ah, okay. All right. So, uh, I, what Carl suggested is that maybe, uh, you know, are we too complacent might be another question, might be perhaps a better question. Or might it be our comfort level leads to complacency? I'm good. This is all I could hope for. I'm good. Anyone else? I think, I guess my thinking along the subject, and the reason I want to ask the question, is I think we can become too comfortable. We can think we've got all the things in our life sort of ordered well, right? Right now, everything seems to be going, clicking along all right. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I've got a job, and it's going well there, and, you know, I'm earning a good income, and, and uh, you know, health-wise, things are in a good position today. And, and we either are too comfortable, or we continue to invest a lot in our comfort. So the next question I was thinking about was, what guides our daily action in regard to this subject of comfort? And I'll give you an example. So I can be comfortable, but when I'm comfortable, as I said, sometimes there's that little bit more. What can I be sure I'm comfortable? What upsets me when I'm in my chair on the back porch and I'm just nice and comfortable? The problem is I can look outside on the three-season porch and I see work waiting for me. What a downer, right? Oh, oh I'm not so comfortable. Why? Because I'm, now I'm thinking about... But, you know, there's things that are going to upset my comfort, right? So sometimes I have to get up, I have to go outside, I have to get those chores done, I come in and say, now I can sit down until the next thought comes. Or I think I need to uh, invest more time in ensuring I'm comfortable for a longer period of time. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a planner. I like to have things figured out. 
And so, you know, I, 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 every week I look at the finances and what bills have to be paid, and then I look forward to, well, okay, well, what about next month? What's, what's going to come up next? Do I have to be prepared for that? And, you know, I've got a plan, and it goes out, you know, week by week, month by month, and I pay so much attention to that because I don't want to get it all messed up. I think that's the way we can be in the daily life, right, is we sort of get into that pattern of figuring it out, being comfortable. And we are very fortunate in the world in which we live in. And then I guess the question is, do we then properly see that God desires that we're to be involved in this world? Not just looking at ourselves, not just looking at what's good for us, not looking just what's good for our family, but are we really seeing the picture about us being involved in ways that God wants us to in this world. I mentioned I've been reading a couple books. They've been by my bedside for a while, and I'm slowly working through them. Usually I have a, quite a number of books on the boil, so to speak, at any one time, uh, any one day, any one week. But these have been by my... Uh, 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 that's a side table for a while. The first one is called Amazing Grace. It is written, uh, it's a biography about William Wilberforce. You may not have heard of him, but he was a, one of the champions in England in, to end the slave trade in the world. A 20-year crusade for him to change the, the, the minds of the people to get past uh, that within the British Empire there would be no more slavery. There would be no more slave trade. And without slave trade, there can't be slavery. And Wilberforce, uh, we'll, we'll talk about him in a minute. I wanted to give you the other book. The other book is a book called Seven Women and the Secret of Their Greatness. Okay? This is a book uh, written by the same author. His name is Eric Metaxas. Uh, I think I've got it up there on the slide. Uh, Eric Metaxas has written a lot of different books, but he's happened to do a fair number of biographies. He did one on Martin Luther that I would greatly recommend. He's done one on Bonhoeffer uh, uh, that I haven't um, uh, read yet. Uh, Bonhoeffer was a, a German pastor during the years of the war and the Nazis, and he stood up against the, the Nazi regime, so much so that eventually he was killed by Hitler and uh, the cronies uh, there. So anyway, uh, this book on seven women, uh, there are people that he, uh, Metaxas, came into you know, contact with in various ways. One is a woman named Hannah Moore, and she was one of the Confederates or one of the partners with William Wilberforce, okay? And so he writes about her. Secondly, uh, uh, in that same book, he writes about Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley was the mother of John Wesley, John Wesley being the founder of Methodism in the world and the revival that uh, that brought into that period of time. And so it talks about her job as the mom in the family and what she did to develop a spiritual life in her family, and in particularly John Wesley, and therefore then having such tremendous impact on the world. So, a couple of people. Now, 
I want to, before I start talking about these people, uh, I want to say, we may not be like these people. We may not change something dramatically in the world. That's okay. I'm not going to have a biography written about me. I'm not going to write my own autobiography. That's okay. But I want to show you what can happen as people begin to see that they need to be uh, doing what God wants them to do in this world. To fathom the magnitude of what Wilberforce did, we have to see that the disease he vanquished forever was actually neither the slave trade nor slavery. Slavery still exists around the world today in such measure as we can hardly fathom. What Wilberforce vanquished was something even worse than slavery, something that was so much more fundamental and can hardly be seen from where we stand today. He vanquished the very mindset uh, uh, that made slavery acceptable and allowed it to survive and thrive for millennia. He destroyed the entire way of seeing the world, one that had had sway from the beginnings of history, and he replaced it with another way of seeing, seeing the world. Included the old, in the old world of seeing things was the idea that the evil of slavery was good. Wilberforce, Wilberforce murdered that old way of seeing things, and so the idea that slavery was good died along with it. Even though slavery continues to exist here and there, the idea of it that it is good is dead. The idea that is inextricably intertwined with human civilization and part of the way things are supposed to be and economically necessary and morally defensible is gone because the entire mindset that supported it is gone. Wilberforce, when he was a young man, was not a Christian. He was, when he began to get interested in spiritual things in the Anglican church, his mother said, no, 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 we can't have that. We, they were from fashionable society, and that's not what we do. We don't take this stuff seriously. So she actually forbade him to go to church when he was young. It was in his 30s, okay, when he began to... Uh, again, think about spiritual things and began to come to, uh, he realized that he had a faith in Christ and he came to a proper faith and he didn't realize that there were implications from that. And he began in, in his way, he was, uh, you know, able to uh, work for, as I said, many years uh, in the parliament of, of Great Britain to change the laws. This came to pass just before he died. His partner in this was a woman that I did not know before. I had not heard of her before. Her name was Hannah Moore. Hannah Moore uh, sort of found her place in society as a playwright, as a writer of poetry, a writer of um, uh, uh, you know, other types of literature, letters to the editor kind of thing. Um, and she uh, was quite popular. And then she kind of set all that aside and realized that, again, that wasn't enough. She moved to a position where she began to write children's stories, for instance. She thought that would be a better use of her talents. Okay? But she likewise helped with the abolition movement. Um, 
But it was more than that. He and Wilberforce also had another goal. Oops. Not where I want to be yet. Hannah Moore and Wilberforce both knew it was the elites who set the fashion, not just in clothing, but in people's behavior, too. In the general, in, in, and in general, the immorality and re- irreligiosity of the upper classes at that time can hardly believe, be believed. For example, the Prince of Wales, who became King George IV, was a notorious ne'er-do-well who racked up astronomical gambling debts, which were paid by the taxpayers from the National Treasury. <clears throat> the, and I'll go on. I'll skip a bit. The effect of these practices on the middle and lower classes was powerful, so Wilberforce determined that, as, that they, as John Pollock memorably put it, would make goodness fashionable. Legislation was not enough, so he and Hannah worked hard to influence the cultural elites directly. But the events of the next year, and he talks about the French Revolution coming on board, but uh, uh, into the world, so to speak. But they were, they were not only going to try to change slavery, but they were trying to, to sort of uh, bring into the mind of the elites of the day that the way they were living their life, which is immoral and, and, and again, without regard to faith, uh, they were bringing that attention and, and, again, sort of raising the bar because those people in you know, the upper society, aristocracy, and then influencing the lower uh, classes was, um, it was deficient, uh, to say the least. Lastly, I'll just quickly mention Susanna. Susanna Wesley, um, the story is about a mother who in, uh, had many children, 10 at least if I remember the number, not all of them lived to adulthood, but she was a woman who was determined to raise her family in, in the day as best she could and to make sure that they had a, a, a solid faith. Her husband was not a big help in this. Uh, he was often away from home, he often, op, uh, oftentimes made poor business decisions, he oftentimes uh, was away in London and other places and neglecting his family. They didn't have enough to live on. They didn't have a proper place to live. And uh, he, he then favored the boys over the girls. All kinds of reasons why he wasn't useful in this. But Susanna Wesley invested the time in her children. She taught them at home. She taught, uh, until the boys eventually went off to uh, public school, but you know, uh, she taught them at home. She developed a routine. She saw that they were brought up in spiritual disciplines, that they prayed daily, that they read their Bible and they could read their Bible. Uh, again, a woman in the background of history, so to speak, except for the fact that John Wesley was one of those children, okay? And John Wesley started the revival, okay, in England and in the, in the United States. Uh, that, that turned into the Methodism, uh, as they called it today, uh, a revival, a return to spiritual discipline that then led to the Methodist Church. Three people that did wonderful things because based on their faith, they sort of put it into practice. So I mentioned, coming from our Friday night small group, 
We have been um, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. Um, and there's just been a lot to think about, okay? Um, let me read for a minute. He, he starts here in chapter 4, and this is a transition point. He's been talking about doctrine and, and sort of, you know, some fundamental truths about who they are in Christ, okay, and what God has done by redeeming them. Uh, and, and he reminds them of that in the first three chapters. And there's sort of, at the start here, there should, you know, uh, th there's a transition. It says, I therefore, based on what I've told you, therefore, he now makes a change. And he says, there's implications to you guys based on what I've told you in the first couple of chapters. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Right? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Each one of us has been called by God to be redeemed, to be part of his family, and to live a life as part of his kingdom here in this world. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, and with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So he says, okay, now there's some implications from this. I want you guys to look at maintaining the unity of this body, this, this group of believers in Ephesus. I'm going to skip down for a ways to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. Three things there. He talks about preachers and teachers whose job was to convey the word of God to the church, okay, so that there would be ministry that results, okay? And that ministry is to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. It's not just saying, just, he's not just talking to the men, by the way. He just says, grow up to be mature people in Christ, in the kingdom of God. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. I think this is what happened to those three individuals I was talking about a couple minutes ago, right? They grew up hearing God's word. They, they were changed by it, whether it depends on where they were, so to speak, in, in the time frames. Wilberforce in his mid-30s, you know, Hannah Moore, you know, sort of became more serious again in her, you know, latter half of her life, perhaps. Okay, Susanna Wesley, I think, you know, had this, but in, was able to inculcate this into her sons, in particular, uh, uh, John and Samuel. And they then, out of that maturity, okay, they sort of launched out to do what they needed to do. We must grow up to mature manhood, all of us. We must remember that we are all essential parts of the body because, again, uh, that's the last thing that uh, in this passage in Ephesians in verse 16, we make, 
that uh, we may grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together with, by every joint by, with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are part of that body. Each one of us are an essential part of the body of Christ. We have a function. The body cannot exist, not, cannot do its job without each one of us in it. And we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. In other words, we must begin to make decisions and see um, and take direction for what goes on in our lives because we are mature. We are to look at what is ahead, not based on our own comfort and desires, but based on Whoops. Oh, I've got it upside down. Woo! This is hard, guys. Uh, yes? No? Doesn't like me? There it is. I hadn't wasted so much time going backwards. So with that Ephesians passage in mind, I wanted us to remind ourselves, how is this to end up? How are we to uh, see ourselves in this world? Do we just look at our comfort and say, that's really all that matters? And in my little world, that's all I can work about, worry about and all I can control and invest all our time there? Or do we need to have a different headset? Okay. And so, sort of coming back to a passage that Pastor Steve talked about a couple weeks ago, or at least mentioned in 1 Peter 2.11, uh, I just want to talk about this for a while. We are to be different, and we are to stand out in this world. Okay? We cannot be like everybody else. And this has been a problem, I think, in some sense, in the last... Uh, you know, 50 to 70 years, there has been a bit of a retreat uh, where uh, society is heading one way and we're, you know, uh, we're heading in a different way, which is good, but we're not influencing enough societies trending away from God's word and God's will and God's desire for everyone. So this is a time when I think we need to begin to think about how we can be different and stand out. We must be different. We cannot be like everyone else. The words uh, in, in uh, First Peter, um, let's go there for a minute. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against your soul. So what does he call them? He calls them sojourners, which is not a word we use much, but exiles we might understand. But basically he's saying, you're aliens and strangers living in this world. You're not of this world. 
You shouldn't be of this world. You are different from this world. You are aliens and strangers. Have you ever been somewhere where you felt you were out of place? Huh? It's happened, right? There's been certain cities I'm in and I'm... Oh, wait a second. I'm, I'm, I'm maybe not where I need to be. Or maybe, um, you know, um, they don't want me here. You get some sense of that. You know, um, I, I've been in places where I've been on the, uh, the subway and uh, I'm the tallest one on the subway. You know, because uh, the particular culture I was there, they, they don't tend to be that tall. And so that subway train would be 12 subway cars long, and it was on a straightaway. I could see from wherever I was to the end in that direction and the other end. And I realized I was different. They treated me a bit different. I got on the subway and they move away from me, right? Um, so that, that's what aliens and strangers are. You're not... You're not quite comfortable there, or people aren't treating you like you really belong there. The Deuteronomy 10.19 passage that I have up there uh, is, uh, is a passage where Moses is reminding the Israelites. This is after the Exodus. They've left Egypt, but he says, you are alien and strangers there. You didn't belong there. Remember, you are aliens and strangers. And your home is where God is taking to you. At the time Moses is talking about them in Deuteronomy, they are still headed to the promised land. He says, that's where you're supposed to go. That's where you're supposed to be. But remember, you were aliens and strangers back there in Egypt, and you are on a journey to a place that God's promised for you. The Hebrews passage is up there because the author of Hebrews reminds us of that in Hebrews chapter 11, 13 to 16. He says, remember, okay, uh, you know, you believers of the day, Gentiles and Jews, both, that again, your promised land is to come. Heaven is to come. That is where we are headed to. That where we live today in this world is not at all, all of that, that's going to matter. We are headed out of here because we are aliens and strangers in this world. Our reality is a different realm. It is the kingdom of God. And we live in the kingdom of God now because we are in Christ, but therefore we are to be different. Our reality in day-to-day -day living is to be different. We must resist our own notions of comfort and our own goals. Now that is difficult. Because there will be opposition. And we struggle with that. Again, Steve's been talking about this in sermons prior to this week. And the problem is, we would much rather that everyone accept that being Christian is, you know, a norm in the society, or at least that people profess it. But that's not the case today. Okay? We are certainly finding in certain parts of uh, what, what we call Western civilization, uh, Europe in particular, uh, there are many, many fewer people attending church or professing Christianity than there are in the United States. But even in the United States, I think uh, the, you know, the, the, the numbers have shifted in the last 50 to 70 years. It's maybe 50%. Maybe it's trending below 50. Okay? People who profess uh, that they, they have faith in Christ. Whether they live it out is another story, but even that profession is going down. 
And so we certainly see it in our society. The people who are, uh, you know, the leadership of our society in a lot of different places, there is opposition to being uh, or, or to being known as members of the kingdom of God. Tell you how this was my own personal story in some sense. I don't want to bog us down too much here, but I'll give you an example. When I was younger, we moved at least every two years. My dad was in the service, so every two years, plucked out of the situation I was in, which were strange enough sometimes, you know, the situations, right? And then plopped down in a new school, new environment someplace else. So nursery school, I was in Tehran. And then in kindergarten, I was in uh, California when my dad went to language school. Uh, first and second grade, I was in Egypt, Cairo, Egypt. Uh, third grade, part of fourth grade, I was in Vienna. So every time, I don't want you to feel sorry for me, but every, every, every time uh, I'm, 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 I was, you know, uh, ups, sort of the app cart was upset for me and I had to move. And I felt uncomfortable because I tried to, you know, new friends, new people, new teachers, new schools, new living situation. And I think over time, it became difficult for me to sort of get through all of that. Fourth grade, I was in three different schools during the course of the year. Started in Vienna, ended up in Martinsburg, PA, Western PA in the Appalachian Mountains uh, for a while uh, because my mom was tending to uh, her father who was dying of cancer. Uh, then we ended the year in Air Mass, right over here uh, where Devons was, and uh, finished out my school year there. I grew up not wanting to be noticed. I grew up not wanting to stand out because I knew I was different, okay? And didn't help that I was a bit nerdy, uh, you know? Uh, didn't help that I, you know, couldn't tie my shoelaces without falling over, you know what I mean? You know, just, you know, all kinds of reasons for this, but I didn't want to stand out. And so when I became a Christian, I didn't want to stand out again. I didn't, I, I sort of, hey, I got myself in a comfortable position, particularly you know, when I was in high school and I was at least tolerated. I wasn't beaten up frequently. You know, so I didn't want to upset that apple cart. So I became a, a believer, but at the same time, I didn't want to hang out with the believers. I didn't want to be known by most people. I didn't want to be known that I was really part of that crowd. And I don't think I made much progress in college. I didn't want to be different. All right, I'm going to read this one. The long quote, everyone has an opinion of you, this writer says. You are talked about, thought of, labeled, inadvertently ranked, grouped, and placed in a particular portion of humanity and society by other people you come into contact with. This placement is rarely spoken of, but the implications are staggering. Most of us are just trying to fit in, be part of something, or simply fly under the radar, making as little waves as possible along the way of life. We who identify as Christians are not living for blissful assimilation or the kudos of other people. Or we shouldn't be. If we are walking truly in Jesus' footsteps, we are radically different from the guy next door, the world, and even many people who profess religion or even Christianity. 
The Apostle Peter says we are aliens and strangers and aliens. that fancy transition. Okay. It goes on. It is time to put off the touchy-feely, lukewarm attitude we have toward the gospel in living the Christian life. It is time to cast off the apathetic comforts of self-contained, cloistered Christianity and to live radically different before this dark and dying world. We need to love other believers and people in our own local church the way Jesus loves them. We need to set aside our agenda, program, ego, and our affections for Jesus alone. We are called to live holy, set-apart lives among a hurting world who sometimes can't distinguish the real Christians from the ones playing church. Some translations refer to us as sojourners, exiles, and foreigners. I thought this author put it well. I'm sorry for the long quote there, but I thought it was a nice summing up of that, that situation. We, we have a choice to make. We have a reality that we need to address. Alistair Begg puts it this way. He says, we are embrace the privilege of disgrace. Doesn't sound quite right, but think about the words. We are to embrace the privilege of disgrace. We are to embrace the privilege that we have because we are in Christ and God has chosen to redeem us and, and to notice that we will be in a disgrace similar to the disgrace that Jesus himself suffered in this world. All right? This first Peter passage talks about us being a royal people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. First uh, Peter 2.9. He then, just before the passage I read a minute ago, he says, now you are God's people. You people, uh, the Hebrew writer writing to the Jews and the Gentiles, he says, you are God's people. That is what you need to be known as. That's your label. That, that, that's the way you should, you, you should embrace that label. And we are to be faithful to God's commands and to be fearless in the face of opposition. Now, first of all, I want to go back to the privilege of disgrace. The writer in Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, 13, talks about uh, uh, we need to live outside the camp, he describes it. And what he's saying there is, uh, you know, to be outside the camp, as the Israelites or the Jews would talk about it in that day, was to live outside of their traditions, outside of their way of life, outside of their belief, and basically to be non-kosher. Okay? And the writer of Hebrews says, we need to be that way. Because Christ was that way. Christ was sacrificed on the cross outside of Jerusalem. He was sacrificed in that place where the, the, the remnant of the burnt offerings were thrown out and cast aside. We need to embrace the privilege of, dis of disgrace is the way that Alistair Begg talks about it. Decisions made. We can look at some examples. Whew, I'm going to have to run fast. I want to just talk quickly, if I can. Daniel. Been in his career now as, a, as a, one of the rulers in, in, uh, in, you know, in, in, during the time of the, uh, is, uh, the Babylonian captivity. The Jews are out, have been taken outside of, of the promised land. 
and, uh, and, and uh, Daniel was one of those, even though he was a foreigner, uh, was uh, brought up in uh, the culture of the day, was given positions of responsibility, and we get to chapter 6, maybe about 80 years old. There's been a change of government, and now he's still there. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, or officials to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom the satraps should give account so the king would suffer no loss. He's well-respected. He's got a great track record. Here he is in a foreign nation, and he is up there near the pinnacle of, of power. People got jealous. Verse 6, Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to them, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whosoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so it cannot be changed. Therefore, King Darius signed the documents and injunction. First of all, they said, everyone agrees. Not Daniel. They didn't ask his opinion. They're setting him up. And so he gets Darius to sign this decree that says nobody should be worshiping a god except the king. And uh, goes on, verse 10, when Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chambers, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before, the, before his God. Now they got him. What did Daniel do? He knew this law had been uh, set in place. And what did he do? He worshipped God just as he'd always done. He knew there was going to be consequence. He did not care. He says, I'm going to continue in the way in which I did before. And when the king heard these words, he was much distressed and said his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. Then the men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Now, no, O king, that is the law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. And therefore, the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own hand. The story goes on, as we know, that Daniel was delivered from that. Okay? Daniel uh, and his deliverance were, were uh, um, were a lesson to the king, right? Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. The king was exceedingly glad and commanded Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. No kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had been maliciously accused, Daniel were brought and cast into the den of the lions. Daniel had a decision to make. This decree was set in place, and he said no. He not only prayed as he had always done, but I think he did it ostentatiously. He was waiting to see God's deliverance, okay, but he was being faithful. We see the same thing happen in Joshua chapter 24, as they're to go into the promised land. Joshua's talking to the nation of the Israelites, and if I can ever get there, 
He makes a statement in 2415. But as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. He says, I don't know what you guys are all going to do, but I'm heading this direction. I'm going to do what God has commanded, and I'm going to go into the promised land. And I am going to continue to do what God says. Ruth chapter um, 1. The story of Ruth is a neat story. Ruth was a, was, from, was a Moabite. She wasn't a Jew. And the circumstances were such that she... is going to return to where she's from. And Ruth says this, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. She was putting herself into a tough situation. But again, she says, I am going to follow your God. Okay? Leaving where I am and go into the land of the Jews. So, what did I want to really talk about? That was all preliminaries. Two thoughts. Alistair, in one of his studies in Ephesians, had a slogan that he created, and I, I thought this kind of summarized a lot of his thinking. He says, first of all, as Christians, we need to eat up. In other words, we need to consume the Bible. We need to consume the Word of God. We need to know it inside and out. He says, then you're to grow up. Just like the Ephesians passage we read of a couple minutes ago. He says, you grow up in maturity. Okay? As you better understand God's plan. God's plan for you specifically. He says, next you're to show up. And then you're to stand up. So taking on that, I sort of said, okay. Our thought, the thought for us today is that we need to stand up. We need to devote ourselves to growing in God's grace. I would encourage you not, oops, okay, I'm there. I would encourage you not to rationalize, all right? Do not rationalize based on your age, your flaws, your seeming lack of ability as far as you're concerned, and you say, gee, you know, I, you know, I, I just, I, I don't know how God can use me, or I don't think that, you know, I'm mature enough, I'm too young, or... Uh, you know, I, I don't know enough yet about the kingdom of God. So how is it possible? Don't discount your worth or your part in God's plan. Stand up. Stand up in your place in this church. Okay? To do what needs to be done. Take your place. You're mature now. Right? It's like, uh, you know, you... You, you might have, you know, been a teenager, and maybe you went to college, maybe you didn't. But suddenly, you had to be an adult. You had to stand up, didn't you? You know, I, I've heard of some, you know, families, it's like, okay, graduate high school. Go on, come on, pack your bags. You're out the door, right? Some, you know, it's like, it's time to stand on your own. In some sense, uh, it's time to think about standing up in your place in this church in, and decide what that might be, right? There's lots of ways in which you can help, lots of ways that you can 
be a leader or not just a leader, perhaps adopt a particular ministry you're going to get involved in. If you don't think you're mature, or if you aren't mature, I would say stand up because it is through service that God matures you. Right? That's one of the means by which God grows us. And then the next thing I want you to think about is be prepared to stand out. Embrace being different. You get ready to speak God's truth in this world by being in this. We've been doing this in the class on Sunday mornings, on the, the class on the Ten Commandments. On, uh, you know, for weeks now, we've just finished the Ninth Commandment today. We'll be in the Tenth Commandment uh, next week, and then we'll, we'll finish up the week thereafter. But we've been looking at what do these Ten Commandments really mean to me? What is God's expectation of my life? And the fact of the matter, God's Ten Commandments stand in direct contrast to our current society. We've been, I think, all of us amazed at the implications of the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not uh, uh, steal. Thou shalt not lie. And, and you look at those in depth, and you see that, that, oh, wow. Not only is there an expectation of how I'm supposed to live, but this is also what God has saved me from. This all reveals my sin, the way I have lived in the past and the way, unfortunately, I may still be living today. But God has saved me from that through his son. And, 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 but we are still called to be different. This morning, right? Holiness is Christ in me, I think was the song that, that, uh, that was picked out, right? Be different, be holy, be set apart. And then I think the next two things are things where we need to uh, voice uh, or give voice to the difference, so to speak. I think we need to speak up in this world, right? We should be influencers, not just grumbling that people are different, right? Or that they're wrong, right? We need to speak to that. It might be in daily conversations. It doesn't mean it has to be arguments. It might be friends. It might be colleagues. It might be, you know, uh, just conversations we get uh, in with people during the day-to-day. -day. But we must speak up. We need to be influencers, right? There's a lot of social media people who call themselves influencers, right? We need to be influencers in the day-to-day -day by being different. And last, we need to leap, leap at ch chances to discuss our faith. Uh, Hebrews 10.23 says, Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And somebody says, well, gee, you know, what do you mean you go to church? Have an answer. It doesn't, you're not going to argue with them, but you need to make a statement. A statement of reality. I go, I go because, you know, I've learned that God loves me. You know, have what they call a, a, a two-minute elevator speech. Right? An answer. Think about it. Try it out. Speak the truth. We need to be speaking the truth. Two pieces in perspective. Uh, the James passage tells us this. It says, oops, 
didn't advance it up there. Okay, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We will have to realize this. There is indifference to God and his truth in this world. Right? There are people who have short-lived faith. Just remember the parable of the sower, right? You sow the seed out there. Some of it falls onto the rocky ground, the path rather, and then there's the rocky ground, and then there's the weeds. And there's people who say, well, that really sounds good. But then after a while, they just kind of back into non-belief or medi you know, lukewarm belief, and, and they're no different. Not everyone is going to come to faith in Christ. A lot of people are going to listen. But there's going to be a lot of people who will fall away or they will get angry. There will be direct, forceful opposition to God and, his, and, and that will be real. We see that too in this world. It doesn't tell us that we shouldn't speak up and be prepared to give an answer for people who ask us about our faith. The Exodus passage I just wanted to talk about. Oops, went through my... Okay. Moses said to the people, this is, they're at the Red Sea. They see Pharaoh's army coming and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. In this case, he's saying, God's going to do it. God's going to bring your salvation. Just like you got out of Egypt because of what God did, he is going to save you from Pharaoh and his army. Just watch and see what happens. And what happens? They're swallowed up in the sea, in the Red Sea. They're gone. That military might and the, and the opportunity for the Pharaoh to follow them is gone because of what God did. We need to remember God will accomplish the work. Our job is to be different. A couple of ways to think about this, lastly. For us older folks, some of us are retired, some of us are nearing retirement. Beware the arbor. This comes from our study in Pilgrim's Progress. Later in the story, in part two, he talk, they talk about the pilgrims going to this place where there's an arbor. And it's comfortable. And talks about people who've gotten that far along and they just kind of stopped. They got comfortable and they fell asleep. Okay? We, this call is for us too, to stand up and to stand out. Uh, Cheryl brought up to me a, a passage in uh, Titus uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 15, talking to the older men and the older women and what their role can be. Okay, much, much that the, uh, the folks uh, of, of, of mature age, I will say, okay, can do. Younger adults, I would say, invest in the maturity, invest in, in growing, uh, take on the challenges uh, that you see uh, that come up day by day. And for the youngest in the congregation, um, just that we develop this identity of being in the kingdom and, and develop that as soon as possible. Spend some time thinking about it and its implications for your life. Okay? So I've gone well after I, sh I should have, guys. I apologize for that. Um, I hope that uh, 
you know, as I said, uh, this is something that uh, is helpful uh, for uh, all of us. Um, I know it's been an opportunity for me to stop and think about um, how do I overcome being that person I was when I was a young boy? All right? I'm an introvert. I don't like to make waves. Still, I don't like to like make waves. I am... I hate conflict. Again, unfortunately, there was conflict in the family, and I was the middle child, and I just have never liked conflict. I need to grow up. 65. I need to grow up! So, let's close. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace. Lord, help us see what you want us to be. Help us to take on this idea, uh, not just a, 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 a wisp of an idea, but a reality, I guess. But make sure it's real in our minds that we are part of your kingdom. We live differently. We are set apart, but it's for a purpose. Lord, I pray that we would each see that purpose and ask you about that purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.